So we finished chapter 7, or last time, which brings us inexorably to chapter 8. One thing to notice is a little over a year has passed. In Ezekiel 1, it's the fourth month of the fifth year of the exile of the high king. Now, when it says the fourth month, it's the fourth month of the year, not the fourth month of his exile. And then in chapter 8, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, what you have is then a year and two months later. So the first vision came 92 B.C. And it would have been in September, so it's at the time of the fall feasts. Remember, the beginning of the year is Nisan, and that's in the spring. So six months later is going to be in the fall, so we're talking about September. But the point is, it's been a year and two months since the original vision. What we have is a segue and a change of subject, sort of. I mean, it's still really grim, but we're going to change location. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So you remember all of the pantomime stuff that he was going through as instructed the first thing, the pantomimes, the, the siege of Jerusalem and the starvation and all that kind of stuff. And one of the commentaries I'm reading says that he was kind of housebound with all the stuff that he had. And so when the elders wanted to talk to him, they came to him. One of the things to keep in mind is it was routine for the leadership of Israel to seek out prophets when they wanted to do stuff. And as you know from other passages of Scripture, the historical books, for example, if you got a prophet that you didn't like, you roughed him up. Jeremiah got thrown in in a pit. Other ones got beat up. We know from Yeshua a lot of them got killed. But the point is, even with all that, a prophet was still a valuable connection to the spiritual world. So people in this case the elders, would still go and seek a prophecy. So they came to him in the sixth year of the sixth month of the fifth day of the month, and the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man, below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock on my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in a vision of God to Jerusalem. When he says has the appearance and so forth, it sort of feels like this is sort of like an apparition as opposed to someone solid. Because you remember, for example, in the book of Joshua, when they're doing the siege of Jericho, Joshua is out inspecting troops and he sees this guy who's armed and says, are you for us or are you for the enemy? And of course he says, no, not for either one of you, I'm the commander of the Lord's host. Joshua then falls down and worships. But the point is, Joshua regards this guy as a guy. It looks like somebody solid. 
The same thing happens with Manoah, Samson's father. And when his wife sees this guy out in the field, it looks like a guy. In this case here, we have Ezekiel going to great lengths saying that this is what it looked like as opposed to this is what it was. What we're dealing with is somebody that looks like flesh and blood. Other places in scripture, they're described as a man, a person, somebody wearing armor, somebody carrying a sword. And we've said this a number of times. Early in the Bible, the barrier between the spiritual world and the physical world seems to be somewhat more porous. And there's lots of stories early in the Bible where somebody's out talking to somebody and all of a sudden, oh, this is not a person I'm talking to, this is something else. So you have Abraham with the three visitors that come to lunch, all of these things. And by the way, the visitors that come to Abraham eat lunch. So these are flesh and blood appearing solid people. This does not appear to be so. This appears to be an apparition. And what this thing does is it grabs him by the top of his head, picks him up by his hair, and takes him to Jerusalem. Obviously, I have no idea what Ezekiel's frame of mind was. I don't know whether he was hesitant to go, so he got grabbed by the hair and said, come on, or what? It just obviously doesn't say. The point is, he is going in a vision to Jerusalem. He is not going to Jerusalem per se. Very similar to what happens to John in Revelation, where he is taken in a vision to heaven and so forth. It happens several places in Scripture. So, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Remember, we had the canal where he was beside when the chariot shows up, and he sees God sitting on a throne, and the image that I sort of have is like you have a, a drone or a helicopter with a pilot sitting there. And that would be God sitting there under a canopy of some kind. Anyway, what he's doing is taking you back to that vision, which happened a year and two months ago. And he's saying that he sees the glory of God just as he did then. I've got an image of a temple up here. This is Solomon's temple. There are a number of different manifestations of it on the internet. I have no idea which one of them is right, but I like this one. If you look up Solomon's temple, you will find variations. About the only thing that's consistent is the holy place and the holy of holies. But the configuration of the chambers around there and the configuration of the gates and those kinds of things, this one is slightly different. The gates are different. Basic layout is sort of the same. 
But you see all the courtyard stuff in this one is different. I have no idea which one's right. I kind of like the one that I started off with. So we'll go with that one. If you've got a computer and you want a different one, by all means. I have no basis to argue with you. This one is obviously turned 90 degrees from the normal map orientation. So north is on the right side there. He is being dropped off where that N is on the right side of the diagram. What he finds there is an idol. That sort of sets the tone for the next couple of chapters. The fact that he is going into the temple complex and at the entrance you have an idol just sort of naturally sets things off on the wrong foot. Back again now to verse 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate at the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. Now, one of the things that's going to happen in the next couple of chapters is God is in fact going to leave. The Shekinah leaves the place. And a couple of things here. First off, jealousy. Jealousy is in fact a healthy emotion. In our society, jealousy is portrayed as something negative and nasty. And it can become so. If jealousy has no factual basis, then it can become pathological. But the idea of jealousy is something that belongs to you is in danger of being taken by someone it doesn't belong to. So you become jealous. And of course, you know that in the book of Numbers, you have this ritual for a husband who has become jealous of his wife. Sort of like Rivka and Shmuley came out from behind the barn and Rivka isn't married to Shmuley. Rivka is married to Moshe. And Moshe sees them coming out from behind the barn and what is going on here? And so what happens is you have now jealousy in the marriage and this ritual in Numbers 5 is designed to clear jealousy up. If in fact there's a reason for the jealousy, in other words, something was going on behind the barn, then the woman simply doesn't take the test. And at that point, the marriage is dissolved. So the whole purpose of the test is to save the marriage and get rid of this spirit of jealousy. So my point here is this image that is seen by Ezekiel is an image that provokes God to jealousy because what's happening here is Israel, instead of paying attention to him, is now paying attention to another God, and God himself is jealous. And the spirit 
then tells him, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to keep going. And so verse 7, And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. Stop here a minute. This is obviously a vision. He is not actually digging a hole in the wall. I am reasonably certain that there isn't actually a hole in the wall in Jerusalem. What I think is going on here is this is a metaphor for something being done in secret. In order to see what's really going on, you've got to dig through this wall and get into this secret place, and you can see then what's actually going on. So as I say, I don't think that there's an actual hole in the wall or any of that. I think it's entirely a metaphor. And one of the things that happens in Ezekiel is God has Ezekiel do a lot of physical stuff in pantomime for that very reason. So this is very much in the same spirit, if you will, as the previous set of stuff that he did. So verse 9, And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jaazaniah, the son of Shapham, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. So what's going on here, this chamber doesn't actually exist. You have to go through this secret entrance that you uncover by digging in a hole, and you go inside, and what you see are all of the idols of Israel, very much like you've all, I'm sure, seen pictures of Egyptian tombs and so forth with the idols very much that same kind of an image here. And the fact that you've got 70 there should take you obviously back to Moses. Because remember, when Moses was whining to God and saying, these people are too many for me, God says, all right, give me 70 elders and we will put some of the spirit that's on you on them and they will take some of your load off. This is all an image or a metaphor intended to evoke the history of Israel. And of course, you all know that in the Masoretic text, there are 70 nations that are separated after the flood. And I believe in the Septuagint, it's 72. So the 70 is significant in several ways. The 70 represents the 70 nations. So the idea that Israel is supposed to be a nation of priests carrying the word of God and the Torah to the nations, the fact that you have 70 elders here who are corrupt is telling you that Israel is not doing what it's supposed to do completely. They are completely corrupt as opposed to just partially corrupt, you know, sort of like completely dead as opposed to just mostly dead. So I'm suggesting to you that this 70 elders has got symbology several different ways, 
One of which is, if these elders are worshiping idols, they are not talking to the nations about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like they're supposed to. The comment was, he's got a group of the elders of Israel in his house as he is carried off in this vision. And the question was, is anybody that he sees in this vision part of the crowd that is at his house? A, I don't know. B, I don't think so. Because at this point in history, the temple is still standing. And you still have the functioning temple system back in Israel. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get rid of that until the second invasion. So, although I obviously don't know what the answer to your question is, I'm assuming that these folks are the ones that were left behind to be caretakers of the temple. But that's a guess. His physical body is in Babylon. He's carried in a vision of Jerusalem, and he sees what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem, and I am assuming it's the caretaker crew that was left by Nebuchadnezzar that he's seeing, as opposed to the elders in Babylon. comment was, he's with Judah in Babylon, and we're talking about Israel here. But the northern kingdom house of Israel has been gone for 125 years at this point. So the only people who are in the temple would have been remnants of the house of Judah, and just physically. And so what's going to happen as we go through this is you're going to sort of have to be light on your feet and alert as to what he means when he says Israel and you know, Judah is pretty clear. Israel is not always so clear. I completely understand your question, but at this point I don't think that there's anybody from Israel back in Jerusalem minding the store. They've been gone for 125 years. The other point, obviously, is the cloud of incense in verse 11. The idea there is they are conducting a worship service. Verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. So there's an example of the house of Israel. At this point, there isn't anybody from the house of Israel there. So I'm assuming we're not talking about remnants of the northern kingdom. Could be wrong, but that's what I think. And notice again, they are doing it in the dark. So all of this is being done secretly. And in verse 12, For they say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. That takes you back to Deuteronomy. And I want to say about Deuteronomy 30, where the blessings and the curses, and what Israel is going to say is all of these curses have come upon us because the Lord has forsaken us. So the sense of the Deuteronomy passage is when Israel is up to their hips and Babylonians, they're going to whine. And they're going to say, well, the only reason that this is happening is because God's abandoned us. And what Moses is telling them is the reason God will abandon you is because of your idol worship. 
You bring the abandonment of God upon yourselves, and then when you discover, oh my goodness, we got too many Babylonians here, it isn't going to do any good to whine to God because he's not going to listen to you. The other thing that is going on is this prophecy is given in the interval between the first and the second Babylonian invasion. The first Babylonian invasion, they came and that's when Daniel and Ezekiel and everybody get carried off to Babylon. Before the second invasion, the remnant of Israel, Judah, rebels and causes Nebuchadnezzar to come back and he sands the place down flat. In this interim period, what you're seeing here in a vision in the temple is the elders of Israel, having been put in subjugation under Babylon, are saying to themselves, well, the reason we're in subjection is because God abandoned us. If God hadn't abandoned us, we would never have been conquered by the Babylonians. Hence, we are going to turn to idols. Moses says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to turn away from me. You're going to go to idols. I'm going to back off. You're going to be up to your hips and somebody. And when that happens, you're going to whine that everything would have been fine if God hadn't bugged out on us. And what they lose track of is the reason God didn't hang around is because they were unfaithful first. Having been unfaithful and having then been abandoned by God, they then turn to idol worship because they've lost their spiritual connection. And so what Ezekiel is seeing here in his vision is the remnant of the people of Israel back in Jerusalem bemoaning the fact that God didn't protect them like he promised and instead then turning to idols. So all the way down to verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. All right, weeping for Tammuz. We have just gotten out of the month of Tammuz. So weeping for Tammuz. Pagan religions have bureaucratic gods. And so what you have is you have a god that's in charge of the sea, a god that's in charge of the rain, a god that's in charge of the wine, a god that's in charge of the vegetation, the plants. In the Greek religion, it's Persephone. And the myth there is that the lord of the underworld comes up and kidnaps her because she's such a good-looking babe and takes her down to the underworld, and that's when we have winter and all of the vegetation dies. And the deal they work out is the daughter gets to be half-time with the father and half-time with the mother. And she goes back and forth, and that's winter and summer. Tammuz is the same thing. So Tammuz goes down to the underworld, and the vegetation all dies. Tammuz comes up in the spring, and the vegetation all comes back. Weeping for Tammuz is a pagan ritual when Tammuz has gone into the underworld and all the plants have died. So they weep for Tammuz so that he will come back in the spring and the vegetation will bloom again. That's what weeping for Tammuz is. Totally pagan practice. Nothing to do with the God of Israel. 
And that's why it's being pointed out here is the remnant has fallen completely into pagan idol worship and pagan practices. Verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Pagan practices going on in the temple, right outside the front door of the temple. So instead of turning and worshiping God, they've got their backs to God and they are worshiping the sun coming up in the east. Verse 17, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? This is the remnant of the house of Judah. So what he's done is he's gone through all of these people doing idol worship. And he's saying that isn't even the bad thing. So all of this stuff that is totally adulterous and totally forbidden, so that isn't the worst of it. The fact is they have filled the land with violence, which is to say they have ceased to follow the Torah of how you treat each other and how you treat strangers, fatherless, and the widow. So they are violent, they are grasping, and I just think I said last time, one of the things that happens with pagan worship is you wind up getting child sacrifice, you wind up getting temple prostitution, where the prostitutes are in fact slaves, they have no choice in the matter. And you get cheating in business, robbery, all of this stuff goes on in a pagan society. The fact that they're worshiping other gods is not even the worst part. The worst part is what they're doing among themselves and among strangers. And as I said last time, one of the reasons besides the adultery problem that God says don't go after other gods is because your society winds up being like this. The worship of other gods becomes a slippery slope and then you wind up at some point with all sorts of abominations practiced in the worship of those gods. And the reason for that is those pagan gods hate people. They are demonic spirits. They don't like people. So they wind up having sacrificial rites that are destructive of people. You know, the Aztecs, the Incas, the major empires that were in Central and South America, they all practiced human sacrifice. So did these. It goes with the territory. Pick it up at verse 17, read to the end of the chapter. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they will put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Branch to the nose, nobody understands. And the other thing it could be is a typo. And it could, be, in fact, be they are a stench in my nose. Chapter 9. 
Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring you the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So you have this crew, total of seven, six destroyers and one recorder. And they're standing around the bronze altar. One of the things that I think is the reason that there are only six destroyers is because they will not completely destroy. It is going to be very severe, but they are not going to make a total end of the nation. Do that whatever you like. That's genealogy. The fact that they're standing at the bronze altar. Bronze, of course, means judgment. Good catch. I didn't catch that. Thank you. Verse 3, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after them and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall not show pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch not the one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Several things going on here. One of the things that I have heard taught, and I like very much, we all know the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast, I believe, is a counterfeit. It is a counterfeit for the mark that God makes on those who are to be spared. So God goes through, or his angel goes through, and marks the forehead of all of those who are disgusted by this, and then the destroyers will go through and kill everyone who doesn't have a mark. My opinion of the mark in Revelation is it's a counterfeit for that protective mark. And by the way, the mark goes all the way back to Genesis. Remember, Cain is marked on the forehead to prevent people from killing him. The comment was that in his Catholic translation, the mark is a tom, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. By the way, in Proto-Hebrew, which would have been the Hebrew that they were using, because they don't get the block script that we know as Hebrew today, in Proto-Hebrew, the tom is a cross. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell on my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? A couple things. The presence of a dead body in the temple is defiling. All of the laws of Tahor and Tamai have to do with death and markers of death. A swine on the altar and all that kind of stuff, yeah, that's bad. But what's really bad is a human corpse because that defiles the place completely. And the other thing that's going on here is notice where the judgment starts. It starts with those closest to God starts in the temple. 
and goes out. And that, by the way, is what happens with Nadab and Avihu. Remember when he toasts Nadab and Avihu as they run into the tabernacle when it was first started? And they run in there in their exuberance and they both get toasted. And he says, I will be sanctified by those closest to me. So the idea that this starts close to God goes all the way back to the Torah. So Ezekiel says, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded me. So we're going to stop there, and I'm going to find that passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31.16. And the Lord said to Moses, notice who's speaking here. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So the sense here is exactly what's going on in Ezekiel. They are of the opinion that God has abandoned them. What God is saying is the reason I have turned my face and let nature take its course is because they abandoned me. And we see that exact thing happening in Ezekiel.